Hey, welcome to Fans of the Forge. I'm Chris. To my right, we have... Teresa. To my left, we have... Hi, I'm Sean. And calling in via Skype, we have special guest Jeff Fader of Fader Knives. How you doing, man? Guys, I want to thank you so much for allowing me to be on your podcast. This is great. I appreciate it. Well, I've been a big fan of Knife Talk for a while now, and uh, I think I actually started listening right after you joined up um, with uh, Craig and, and Mareko there. So right. been listening for a while. I really enjoy it. I turned Sean on to it. And... Um, yeah, we're just excited. Teresa, Teresa's not you know, interested. He didn't share it's this fine. with me until like this week. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm with you. I, I understand. I, I'm actually in Teresa's camp. I probably wouldn't listen to it either if I was Teresa. <laughs> well, so if people don't know Jeff from Knife Talk Podcast, you know, we have a little bit of background information here. So um, I was reading up on your past and you have a BFA in sculpture from Kenyon College. That's right. So that's that's pretty interesting. And then you started off as a sculptor after that, and and before, you know, I looked at your bio. Excuse me, but you were you were working Fine. for artists, and then yeah. you got into cooking school and joined the Charlie Palmer group, and then you went back to sculpture. So that's uh-huh. that's a heck of a journey there. I went all I went the wrong way. All <laughs> the, the whole way I went the wrong way. The one thing I'll, I'll say is I learned how to weld. As, a, as an art student, and I will say this to all your listeners, learning how to weld from an art teacher is the worst <laughs> idea you can ever do. They, they are the worst welding teachers ever. So I uh, went to school. I was really interested. When I was a kid, the whole the background is when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to have the toys they wanted. And my dad, who was a very handy guy, and uh, he had a shop, he said, listen, I know you. We didn't have guns in the house, so he said, you can't have toy guns. All my friends are out of toy guns, and I had these dumb sticks, and I hated it. And he said, listen, you can't have any guns, but what I'll do is I'll teach you how to make stuff. So he got me on the bandsaw when I was like 11 or 12, and I, and I started making my own stuff. And then it got to the point where I was far more interested in what I was making than – or the way I got to make these things than what I actually made. So I was doing a lot of that, and then when I got to school – college, I really thought, all right, well, maybe I'm going to do this. And I was waiting for the band, saw there was a huge line. And this friend of mine said, hey, you know, hey, kid, don't wait for glue to dry. Let's, I'll teach you how to weld. And no one was welding because everyone was terrified. And then I started welding. And then it got to the point where I was just like, that's all I'm going to do is metal work. And then I ended up working for other artists after, you know, on the summers and stuff like that, basically being a fabricator. And I did a lot of steel work. The funny thing is, and I've said this in the past, is you know, welders, if you can work a MIG, a MIG welder, you're, you can, it's pretty easy to get into a fabrication shop. So I ended up jumping around working for other artists and then as a fabricator, and then I was making my own sculpture. And then out of fear, I went to culinary school because I was about to marry my wife and her family was not thrilled that she was marrying an artist. (laughs) So, um, I went to culinary school and then I ended up working for the Charlie Palmer group. And then I went, I ended up getting a job at the Center for Metal Arts. And I was a fabricator at the Center for Metal Arts. They had a wing back before Pat Quinn ran it. It was fine architectural metalsmiths in the Center for Metal Arts. And the fine architectural metalsmiths was more railings and wrought iron and traditional blacksmithing. And then we would have classes at the Center for Metal Arts with Fred Christ and Uri Hoffi and um, all these other uh, 
blacksmiths would come and we'd teach classes. So I was always the assistant to those classes and I was the assistant and I helped run the class. I helped assist the classes and helped assist the teachers. And I was doing, you know, I was paid to be a blacksmith. So I, I learned how to be a blacksmith there. And then, you know, I left and then I helped a friend of mine, uh, John Ledford, who uh, run this school called uh, Hudson River Ironworks up not, not too far from me. And that's where I met Matt Paul, MP Knives. And then we were te- he was teaching uh, bladesmithing classes and I was helping him. And I'd already been a blacksmith for a while. So I was like, well, let me give this a whirl. And I was helping him and I was forging out a little, you know, bushcraft knives or whatever. And I was like, all right, this is kind of neat. And then that's how I started making knives. Oh, you just cool. answered our first question too, actually. Boom. See, we're going to see, we're gonna get through all the red tape. And then we're going to talk about the real stuff. Go ahead. <laughs> so so you talked about that's how you started forging knives. Do you right. still have the first knife that you forge? Uh, my business partner has it. Yeah, it has. my business partner has it in our shop in New York City. So, yeah. Cool. But I'm not sentimental. That's the thing. That's the problem with, with a lot of these knife makers and sculptors and blacksmiths is they're too sentimental about the first things they made. The key is, as always, if the next one's going to be better. So the whatever you make, you can't get too you can't get too in love with the thing that you make. It's always the next one. So I don't even think about the first one. Hmm. Question, question two done. <laughs> question two number done. <laughs> <laughs> Take the next one. Sure. Uh, coming from the cooking industry and working with some top level chefs, does that push you toward making more chef and kitchen knives? Well, um, I never, when I first started making knives, I was forging those bushcraft knives, kind of brute to forge style. So there's a lot of heavy scale on it and stuff like that. And it got, and it really, I really wanted to make knives for people to use. I was, I'm not a hunter. I was never, you know, I never used the tactical knives or any of that. So I was a cook and my friends are cooks and my friends are chefs. I was like, ah, you know what, I'm going to, I want to make things for people to use, um, not to be something that's like a fetish, you know, a fetish object. So I started making culinary knives and I started making them for chef friends of mine. And then one of the businesses that part of our business at Vader Knives is we work with the chef and we'll, uh, we'll let them design the knife and then we'll use their social media and then we'll make a limited edition. And so where I'm allowing, you know, the custom experience for the chef and you're kind of creating something that they would want. So the answer is yes. Okay. A lot of culinary. <laughs> I'd say probably 90, 90% of my knives are culinary knives. Yeah. Do you have a favorite blade style or design? Um, I would I would say that it's I like it's interesting because I really like full tang knives. That, you know, when you're in culinary school, they don't really they're not interested in you showing up with some like high end Japanese, you know, sushi knife. They don't want you to do. They want you to come in with the you know the Western style full tang knives. And I've always liked that style. Um, I I. I I I I don't have a favorite. I I like doing it all and if I were to make myself a knife, which I I have like the beaters, I get the stuff that, you know, gets rejected or is broken or, you know, whatever something happened. I would probably have an 8-inch full tang knife, full tang chef knife. Yeah. Nice. So, how long have you been painting the watercolor blueprints for your knives? Well, I started out when I was in college, I was doing a lot of watercolor and I was really I was taking I had to take these paint I had to, when you're an art major, you you can't just take the class you want. You got to take a lot of other ones. So I ended up getting into these watercolor classes. And my father was a watercolorist, and I hated watercolor because I hate, it's so it's so process oriented. It's almost more like printmaking than anything else. It's not like I think the people when they see painting, they think that you know you get a little bit of this and then a little bit of that. 
But watercolor is not like that. You got to you got to lay down layers, so it's closer to printmaking than it is to actually like you know painting with acrylics or oils. Mm-hmm. So I was doing a lot of that back in the day, and then when I started, you know, I do so many different styles of knives. It was I couldn't mock everything up. I couldn't even get I couldn't mock up the colors and everything like that. But I could paint them, and I could give you a pretty close proximity to you know, how, how old it was going to look like. So that was the easiest way. So at night I would do the watercolors. And then what happened was, is I started using the watercolors as my blueprints. And then I started making, um, well, two things. I started making watercolors as the blueprints. And then the interesting thing is this, uh, I started doing these progression drawings. And when I was, the funny thing is when I first started the center for Middle arts, they were paying me to take these classes but the expectation was you got to know what they're doing. So you have to make sure you're doing. And if you've ever taken a blacksmithing class or a bladesmithing class or usually these forging classes, here's what you end up seeing. You see five or six guys wearing, you know, carpenter jeans and Carhartt pants. <laughs> and they're standing with their legs a little bit farther apart than their shoulders. And they've got their hands on their hips and they're not paying attention. So with blacksmithing, everything is little steps. And A, you have to go to, you know, you have to travel these, see these tiny little steps. So I started to realize that the best thing for me to do is take notes. And I was taking these draw, I was, a, you know, I could, I would draw the notes. And what I would, what happened was, is, you know, all these guys standing there with their hands, you know, their hands by their hips, you know, like pretending like they know what's going on. They have no idea. They would turn to me and say, what did he do? What did he do there? What did that little, how did he hold it against the anvil or what? Because I think that there's this huge misconception with blacksmithing that people, and I'll get back to the watercolor. I know I just kind of went off, but the thing is with blacksmithing is I think that people don't realize that it's not just taking a piece of steel, putting it against the anvil and hitting it. You're holding your steel against, you know, the anvil at different, at different, you know, the edges are different. There's a crisp edge. There's a radius edge. You're using every different part differently. So I think that what happens is, is people start to – they don't realize. They just think, you know, just hit it with a hammer and that, that's the end of it, which couldn't be farther from the truth. So I started to do watercolors of the progression drawings. And I, the first one I did was I did uh, the Power Hammer Rose from Fred Christ. And then I was doing uh, tongs that Hoffie made. And then I was doing these progression drawings. And it was just my notes. But then I started doing notes for hammer makers, like uh, Sunset Forge. I was doing hammer for him. For Dan Whitehoff, I was doing axes for him. And what I would do is, I'd be like, well, let me give me you give me your information. I'll do a copy of the watercolors, the progression, and then I'll give you a copy. It's yours to do with whatever you want, and I won't. It's not for me to sell. I just want it for my own notes. And the thing is, for the water, the reason why the watercolors are so good is because you could wherever the steel was supposed to be hot you could make it red. So you knew exactly where it should be. You know, steel, when you're putting a piece of steel in the in the forge, that doesn't mean you have to have the whole thing hot. Right. You know, so there are parts of it you don't you don't want to be hot. You know, there are parts of it that you, you're going to overheat. So I was, I was a really great way for me to um, kind of translate notes and how to do things for people. And it's gotten crazy. Lynn Ray, who was one of the master bladesmith, I, I, uh, I did for him. I approached him. I said, listen, I'd love to do this. And it's all very selfish, to be honest with you. I just want to know how he does it. And then what I do is I give him a copy and then I just get my little light box out and do another version for him. And then I give it to him and I say, you know, Lynn, this is yours. I'm not interested in giving it away. I'm not interested in selling it. This is your information. I don't, I'm not here for the crumbs. I want the loaf. I'm, this isn't me selling prints of other people's information. Didn't, didn't do anything for me. 
so that was how I, so I started doing that. And then I started doing more watercolors with my knives and I'm kind of the kind of person like can't just sit still. So at night I can do the watercolors. And the thing is the watercolors is you can do them, you can do a pile of them and then you can layer the color on. And then when one's drying, you can work on another one. So that's the answer for that. So I've always been doing them, doing them more. I got contacted to do a book, but we'll see. We'll see. Well, that'd be pretty cool because I yeah. really enjoy seeing the artwork that you put up as well as like the knives that it then compares to in real life. It's a, and it's a, it's a neat way to view it. I mean, not a lot of guys will show you the full sketches and, and things like that when they're, when they're putting these knife pictures up. Sometimes they'll show it in progression and sometimes all you see is this is the knife I just made and getting all these different iterations of it is, is just an interesting aspect and, as potential possible bladesmiths of the future, as we learn ourselves, it it opens up the doors for us to kind of see how these things are done. So, well, I appreciate it, and and actually, I actually that I was when I was talking to Lynn Ray about it, he was very along the lines of you know this this is you know he wants to be able to pass this information down, and and when i was when i was the center for mental arts and i was a member of abana that's the uh, blacksmith association there's only 3000 members in the united states that's insane and <laughs> and there, as at the time you weren't getting a lot of information being passed down this was before instagram before social media so you weren't getting a lot of this information passed down and i just it was shocking to me that um, and the schools were really catering towards blacksmiths not your average person. So there's a lot of opportunities that schools now with uh, with Nick Rossi over the uh, New England School of Metalwork and now Pat Quinn down at the Center for Metal Arts, there's a lot more classes that are going to be uh, available for people, um, especially stuff for people that maybe they never want to make knives again or maybe they never, never want to do it again. Right. You know, it's not going to just be, hopefully, it's not going to just be like, hey, you got to take five you know, classes on how to make S hooks before you can make a pair of tongs. And, uh, it's, there's, there's going to have to be, there's going to, there's a, there are people want to make stuff that they might not want to be blacksmiths. Right. So I don't know why I think I derailed you. I apologize. No, no, okay. no. That was, that was good. <laughs> Do you have a preferred knife making method like, um, stock removal or forging or Damascus? <clears throat> well, if, if I could, I mean, my business the funny thing about the businesses is um, stock removal. I do. I would say ninety percent of ninety five percent of my knives are stock removal, and it's just for the for the for the for the ability to kind of um, provide value to the customer. If it were up to me, I'd only forge everything. If I never had to touch a grinder again, I'd never touch a grinder again. I love forging. I mean, that's what I did before. You know, that's what all I did. So um, I love. I love forging. I've been doing um, some integral knives lately, which I love. Integral. I, I, you know, on the podcast, I've been getting these comments. They're saying <laughs> that I'm saying it wrong. I either say it's and, – and then I got I get these like high-level dudes calling you, it's not integral. It's integral. I'm like, All right, whatever it is, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so that's the ones that I like the most. And then uh, I would love to forge. If I could forge only forge, I would only forge. But – People don't. People want shiny knives. They don't want the. They don't like the. The brute to forge finish, isn't really for you. You know your your average, your average customer, which is mine. I I focus on. I want people. The people who buy my knives are regular people who who've maybe never bought a custom knife before, right. and that's what I like because I'm a you know 
So being able to kind of pass down savings and, and, and trying to get people in the door with, you know, I mean, not $29 knives, but you know what I'm talking about. You know, something you know, introductory into getting, um, you know, into that custom experience. So my preferred is forged, but the reality is, is it's mostly stock removal. Well, is the, uh, you know, the, those knife, that knife set you yes. know, from A&E, I mean, that's brute no. to forge, right? <laughs> oh, geez. Don't even start I, with that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I think that, uh, I think it's a, I think it's somebody who just bought a stencil. <laughs> I, I, that's what I've always said. Uh, you look at those, those guys have made that knife before. Yeah. So just bought a new stencil. So your new best friend, Spicy Mike, he Shout bought one of those Mike. knives. He has one of those. Oh, spicy Mike. He, right, do you, do you, do you have, we have to kind of recap Spicy Mike, right? You have to see this is broadcasting. So you, your, your, some of your, your listeners don't know about Spicy Mike. Well, we have had him on for an interview before. Oh, you have? Yes. yes. Uh, when, yeah, he, when he won Mike's his episode around. of Forge and Fire, we had Spicy him Spicy Mike was on Forge and Fire? Yeah. He won Forge and Fire. I thought he was just a goddamn hot sauce guy. <laughs> no, no, no. That's how we he know won. him. <laughs> he won, and I gave him shit because like, he was putting hot sauce on a banana during the episode, and uh, I called him out on it. Because he did you it Because I did the it first. first. I've heard, this is the first we've heard of Spicy Mike being on the podcast, being on Forge and Fire. Well, Mareko so didn't mention it, but no, uh, he first certainly didn't. He <laughs> thought his name was. He's all he did is say was name was Spicy Mike. <laughs> spicy Mike. He thought he's just like a weed guy, but he's a spice like a pepper guy. I mean, uh, no, it was so bizarre. We were talking about, you know, he was talking about preparing for your event. You're doing this event this coming sa- uh, Sunday, right? Yes. Yes. You're doing a, a hot wings test. Right. Yeah, so, so, so go well, ahead. Let's okay. Let's let's go all the way around here and figure <laughs> yeah. out what we're talking about. So we'll start with the hot sauce hammer off. So yeah. that's actually, I'm involved with it. Sean and I are doing videography for Dragon's Breath Forge. So this yeah. is their event, and they are hiring us for it because they like the videos that we've been putting out. Very cool. So that's how we got involved, and we're also one town over from them, so it's real easy. Connecticut's in the house. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, won't, I won't make any cracks about Connecticut, much like Mareko. Mareko makes tons of cracks. It's okay. We we <laughs> understand. What he's leaving anyway. Like. We're, we're kicking he's him leave. out. He go. He don't. He hasn't even gone to Pep Frank Pepe's yet. He doesn't know. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> he don't even know. He Sacrilege. Even know. That's it. Um, and there's one there's one town over from the the forge. Yeah, so there's it's one in water. White, right White clam pie. I got you. I'm with you. <laughs> so anyway, so that event's happening. Mareko's talking about how they're prepping by using Spicy Mike's hot sauce as their oh. their test stuff. Yeah. Now we got in touch with Spicy Mike a couple months ago, again, because he was on Forge and Fire. They made this whole point of him putting hot sauce on a banana. While he was on the show, like in, while forging something, he needed a, uh, a snack. But he needed potassium. He was cramping up. Yeah. So he had it. They gave him a banana. He pulled out his own hot sauce that he brought with him and <laughs> put it on the banana and was eating it. And then he made it to the final round and they went out of their way to do a shot in the forge that he was working at of just a pile of peppers in the forge, like on on a table in the forge, just a giant pile of different peppers. And so we're like, what the hell is up with this guy? And we get a hold of him. I think he saw our wrap-up and was like commenting on it. And I was like, listen, dude, just come on for an interview and we'll, and we'll chat about it. And so we're actually pretty friendly with Spicy Mike. So when he came to... He was in Massachusetts. Well, he was in Connecticut at the Dragon's Breath Forge. <laughs> 
right? for a hammering. And we missed him, but I was like, hey, man, I didn't know you were going to be in town. If you're still around, let's meet up. So he was up in Massachusetts with, uh, I believe, uh, Ryan Brewer uh, has a, a spot up there where he's working. He's another guy that was on the show with him. And um, we're like, hey, dude, let's get some pizza. So we met him for dinner one night, and he brought a bunch of his hot sauces with him. And we were, like, testing it out on pizza and wings. It's good stuff. It is good stuff. But So we have a back history with Spicy Mike. <laughs> Certainly do. So <laughs> that I'm, being I'm, said, embarrassed. I'm, emb- I'm embarrassed that I don't know this, but that's fine. I don't, there's a lot of, and he's a lot gonna of be on, fire stuff I don't know. He's going to be on A Knife or Death. Oh, yeah. He's also oh, is he? on Knife or Death, the season three, oh. whatever the hell that airs. What's Spicy, what is, then why does Spicy Mike need me to make a T-shirt for him? He, he don't need my help. No, I'll, I'll make it. No, but that would be Mike. hilarious. Worry, you should still make a T-shirt. I'm on mail. I'll make him a T-shirt. Listen, I'll make you guys t-shirt. laughed way too hard to not make a shirt, <laughs> dude. I, I I don't know what happened. That that episode, the last episode of Knife Talk, it was like we were leaving. Mareko was talking about this event. <laughs> Next thing you know, he talks with this guy came into my shop named Spicy Mike and Craig and I. Well, you have to listen to podcast. <laughs> yeah. Listen to podcast, and you can find out. It was a, it was probably my favorite episode of, of so far because it's. Spicy Mike. Now that I know that now that I know that he was a Fortune Fire champion, I got to watch my P's and Q's around Spicy Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know, we we actually I was like halfway through that episode when I, when Mareko was like, "Hey, did you hear us call you out on Knife Talk?" I'm like, "What? Like you called out Bands of the Forge?" And yeah. so it was like leaving from you know yeah. chatting with the guys that I listened to it on the way home and heard the whole when you called us out and then the whole Spicy Mike thing and yeah. i died it was hilarious it was funny yeah it's so. funny you know knife talk is, has changed a lot and a lot of that change has has been good and you know when craig craig started uh knife talk craig lockwood started knife talk a couple of years ago and i actually was i was a third guy i was he had walter sorrels then alex Steele, and then me that was like i was like me what do you want me for and it was because my buddy my buddy jesse savage is the is the he, he's one of the best, you know, he's an awesome blacksmith. He, he runs the Blacksmith's Pub podcast. And he says, hey, Jeff, go check this out. So and then I was on and then I was on a couple more times and I actually was a guest host for him. And then he just got, you know, it's hard. It, as you guys know, it's hard to kind of create uh, chemistry with somebody, you know. And the, the thing is, is, I'm a huge podcasting fan, a huge radio fan. And I used to do a radio show, with a uh, podcast with a good friend of mine for a long, long time. And creating that chemistry is very hard. And what he was doing is an unbelievable job. He would orient people how to get the software so they could record the podcast. And then he had to come up with questions. And he had to create chemistry with this person whom a lot of them have never talked on a ra- on a podcast or, or any kind of this kind of before. And he did an awesome job. But it got exhausting, as you can imagine, scheduling scheduling, you know, all the scheduling and all that nonsense. So then when he, he, he approached me and Mareko, I was going to do my own podcast for a while. And then I was just like, no, you can do all the work. It's fine by me. I'll just go on for an hour and you know, bullshit with you. It's fine by me. And we're having a good time. We're having a good time. Well, that's great. And oh. so, you know, we're, again, we're fans of that, the whole show and shout out to, uh, Craig over at Chop Knives. Cause he does a great job with it. He does all the heavy lifting. He does all the you know, we do it differently than what we're doing now is you're just recording the Skype talk. We record three tracks. We send them to Craig. Craig mixes them all together. And he does a lot of work. He does a lot of work. So shout out to Craig Lockwood. So let's move back in <laughs> to <laughs> our <you> questions. 
Whose turn is it? Is it Sean's? Uh, yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> are you making sculptures alongside knife making in your business? Not right now. Uh, I, I Once in a while, I'll get a commission um, that I try to squeeze in. Uh, I'm not... I, I the last I had a the last art show I was at I was going to do a solo show in this art gallery, and it I was ready I was all fired up I said I'm going to do all new work and, blah, blah, blah. and uh, I had two meetings and they did a studio visit it was a whole big production and then when then they said then they said to me well it's going to be the show will be open for four weeks on Saturdays and Sundays and we need you to be there half the time so it was going to be open for eight days. And I had to be there for four days and sell my own sculpture and give them 50%. I was like, fuck this. I'm going to make knives. So it was really like one of those things where I, I was very, very, you know, it was uh, luckily for me, I was able to, I, I have the ability and the, uh, I have the, the business that I can just do that. So once in a while, like there's a commission I might be doing soon that I want to do. There's, I'm trying to do the stuff that I want to do. I don't get a chance to make sculpture that much anymore. I'm not a bummed about it. I, at some point, I know that someday I will. Um, I'm getting the, you know, the, the similarities between artists and knife makers, the similarities is that it's, you're really getting a rush and people who make things, blacksmiths, bladesmiths, or or cabinet makers, woodworkers, it's never really the end. It's like getting to the, it's that, it's the, it's the, the journey from, you know, envisioning something and then designing it and then executing it. That's where you get the rush. So I was getting the same rush making knives or even just a stage of knives um, as you would making a sculpture. So I'm I'm good. And, and, you know, once in a while we'll see. I mean, I'm not I'm not pining away to make sculpture. I'm pining away to make business. Well, yeah, <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah. So going to switch it up a little bit here and this is going to be kind of a two-parter so how did the epicurious video come about and is it surreal to see a video of you on youtube that has over two and a half million views i will tell you not only this i'll tell you the front story the back story the whole story (laughs) um i was a pro i tell you what who was i was approached because um cut brooklyn joel at cut brooklyn was supposed to do uh, Epic- uh, uh, something for something for Epicurious, and then he broke his leg or something like that. And he says, you know, Fader does these live streams. Go get him. So they contacted me to do the episode that Will Will Griffin did. Will Griffin is a bladesmith in Red Hook, Brooklyn, awesome guy, and he did uh, a knife comparison video. I was supposed to do that one, and then I went to a couple of meetings, and they're like, well, we want to put you into the, <clears throat> this uh, price points. <clears throat> so I wrote the episode. That's what, you know, the, that's the magic of TV is <laughs> you think that they pulled me off the street, and I, you know, was able to be coherent for, you know, 16 minutes without <laughs> stuttering once. Trust me, we're on there for seven hours. So I wrote the thing, um, and then um, they gave us. I got once we had to go through, you know, I had to create these, you know, these different contrasts. And I had to, I got a lot of control over that, which I was appreciative of. And they didn't know. It's not like there's a guild over at the Condé Nast that knows every, you know, it's not like they have master bladesmiths at Condé Nast. They don't know shit. I could have said anything. I could have really, I could have, I could have changed the whole, I could have said whatever I wanted. They would never, it wouldn't have made a difference. So, um, so I was able to, I, we, we, you know, 
the Damascus knife at the end was I, they were like I had six days to cough up all those knives. Luckily for me, I know that the the, um, the people at JB Prince in Manhattan is one of the biggest uh, culinary places in uh, New York. Tim Music's a friend of mine. I was like, go call Tim. He'll get you whatever you need. And then they said, well, do you think you could get us a, a Damascus bread knife? Who's <laughs> got a Damascus bread knife? That's a crit. So the first thing I do is I call Mareko because he's a buddy of mine. I'm like, hey, Mareko, we know it. I was going to call Nick Anger. I was going to call a couple guys. I was like, do you know where I could borrow a, a serrated bread knife? He's like, yeah, I got one right here. <laughs> and I said, really? He's like, yeah, I'll drive it down. Because we were afraid. I, I had such a limited amount of time. So he drove it down. And then when we got to – and I was like, no one's touching this knife. I mean this is a $5,000 knife. No one's touching the 4000 whatever it is. No one's touching this knife. And uh, we got down there. They got everything else except for originally the boning knife was supposed to be a Ginsu knife. I wanted to do a Ginsu thing. And they couldn't find the Ginsu knife. So I come in and they were going and we're talking. They're bringing all the knives. They got all the knives that we requested. I needed specific – we wanted to get specific ones just to make them very – and then there's no Ginsu knife. And I said, well, you can't go to get a Ginsu knife if we couldn't find one. I was like, what are you talking about? You know, Walmart, Kmart, going to all these places, you couldn't, we couldn't find one. I said, you mean, you mean to tell me I found a Damascus bread knife <laughs> in six days and you couldn't find a Ginsu knife? And it was, it was just like, was like, and then one of the production assistants starts to grab it. And I said, listen, I'm going to tell you this right now. If you drop this knife, I'm going to put my hands on you. <laughs> and it got very quiet. And I said, I'm sorry. I'm going to put my hands on you. If you drop this knife, I'm going to put my hands on you. Didn't touch. I had carried the rest of the day. I didn't touch that night. So we did that. Um, we had a good time. Um, it, they did a great job. They were really, really cool. The director was really awesome. She really knew kind of how to kind of keep me going because it was, you know, it's, I've never done that before. The, the, the shoot was crazy because there's tons of lights and cameras on just like super everything all over. And you're nervous. And, you know, this isn't what I do for a living. And um, they got it done. And, um, in regards to being surreal, I don't really kind of believe in the concept of fame. I don't think that it exists. So I really try not to think about it. Um, I really don't like – it's weird and fine, but it's like, you know, now what? And I don't, I don't really get all hung up on it. I'm not – I don't believe – I don't really believe in the concept of fame. I don't think it's – I don't think it's a tangible thing. So the answer is it's fine. It's fine. And, you know, <clears throat> I'm not, you know. The funny part is, is I didn't read the YouTube comments because I got a, a message from uh, Will Griffin when he did his. He says, "Listen, his, you know, our hands are tore up. You know, uh, when you're a knife maker, you put your hands first. That grinder's tapping your fingers every day. My fingers are a disaster area." <laughs> so Will said to me, he says to me before, he says, "Just, just be, just be aware that you're, they're going to talk about your hands. I'm like, what do you mean they're going to talk about my hands? I'm like, they're going to go after your hands. I'm like, what do you mean?" He's like, watch the video with me. His hands look like, I mean, he looks like a drug addict. I mean, his, hands look, <laughs> his hands look like he went through glass. And I was just like, oh, yeah. And then all of YouTube videos like, what's up with his fucking hands, man? What the fuck does that guy do? You know, so then, so then I was just like, well, I'm just not going to read the YouTube comments. And then Jonathan Porter, Jonathan Porter, Doghouse Forge, decides, you know, he and I became friends in Doghouse. He just sends me a message saying, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to just give you a synopsis. So he gave me the synopsis of all the comments, you know, spent Chris Pratt, Vince Vaughn, <laughs> fucked up hands, your hands are tore up. So I was just like, all right, fine. What? It's fine. And then one of the first episodes of Knife Talk, Craig and I, Mareko was out doing the Joe Rogan show. Right. And Craig said to me, well, what you talking about? I said, you know, what'd be funny is if you read the YouTube comments to me and then I'll just, I haven't read them. 
so I'll just react. And it was funny. We had a good time. And it was like, he just started <laughs> blasting me with these awful YouTube comments. And I was just like, all right, well, you know, yeah, my hands are bad. Now what? So that's the answer for that. I don't have any other good. They were really cool over there. They were the Condé Nast. I, I, they, they were really, really cool. The people who were there did a nice job. Um, it was a fun experience. Um, yeah. Cool. Oh, that's, yeah. that's, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting story to hear. You know, you know, the behind the scenes sort of thing. You know, well, uh, they don't, you know, they also, they, we did everything and, you know, they did everything. We, we did everything not in, nothing's sequential. Right. So at one point there was a guy running out while I were trying to try to find any kind of boning knife. And then they came up with the two boning knives and they were, we had to, we had to do a, you know, an audible, so to speak. And we had to really kind of like change it up on the fly. We had, and, and the other thing is, is they give you for that room. It's this big, beautiful room with windows and they, they just, these are this Condé Nast building down by the world trade center. And you, they got that room for seven hours. So they got to get that shit like that. So the call time was 11 I got there at 11. I was sitting in the makeup chair, if you can believe that, for like <laughs> hours. I'm like, oh, man, the clock. I'm thinking our time is running out. And, and all of a sudden I'm thinking the pressure, you know, they're doing the lights and the sound, everything, keying everything up. And like the pressure's now on me because they have a limited amount of time. They're paying all these guys. And that was the scariest part being like you got to like you got to cough it up. So the funniest part was is I didn't know how to – I didn't know how to – finish my sentences like i didn't i would talk about something and then stare you know it was just like very awkward of like and my business partner tony was there and he's just like look just don't worry just just do your thing they're do they're in charge of the editing just do just go you know just do what you got to do and don't worry they're going to edit it just talk so i would and then i don't you know it was just very <laughs> odd awkward very you know whatever and then at one point i was just like i gotta get out. and then i started calling out to tony you know and there's tony you gotta get me out of here i gotta get the, i gotta we gotta get this thing done i gotta get out so then at the last point that i said, I said oh, i'm with you but that like i'm i'm with you came from leave me alone so i started saying i'm with you to kind of finish a sentence or finish a conversation or get out of a conversation so then at the end they put in the i'm with you which is really funny because that seems to be my unfortunate tag tag <laughs> Oh. Okay, so now we're going to continue to switch it up. Dude, I'm with you. General questions? General questions. Okay. Do you have a favorite type of mono steel to use? Um for I I like I like 1084 for carbon steel a lot. A 1084 is something that's really easy uh to use. No, it's fine. Heat treating is easy, relatively easy. Um I get good success with it. I like 52100 as well, um, and the stainless steel I like, uh, I use primarily as 440C. Okay. I like 440C. Nice. I'm old with school. you. It's like old school. There, my <laughs> man. My man. Sean's my man. That's the 440C is what you used to get when you like went to like the uh, – the county fairs and did the ring toss and you'd win the Pakistani knives and you see Pakistan and then you see 440C. Wow. Reminded me of Rambo knives, you know? <laughs> nice. Do you have a preferred steel combination for making Damascus? Uh, I mean, I've only made Damascus once and it was with 1084 and 52100 with Aaron Wilburn. I mean, that's, I don't really, I don't make a lot of, I actually just bought some 
1084 and uh, 521, uh, 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 15 and 20 from New Jersey Steel Baron. So I'm going to try to, I'm going to work on make. I got a new, I got a bigger forge, a little bit uh, hotter forge. So I'm going to be make, trying to make some trying. I'm saying trying to make some uh, some random pattern Damascus and some start to work in more forging and more Damascus. Well, so you got a good coach with Morocco if you can squeeze some info out of him. Oh yeah, I'll squeeze it. He, we're gonna do it. We're gonna have a. We're gonna at some point we're gonna have a hammer in with him before he leaves for uh, yeah. back out west. But yeah, he's. I'm. I'm very. I'm very fortunate. Not to mention this podcast has kind of opened me up to a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of people have been reaching out, and I've, I, I get the. I get some guys who are. It's a little surprise. Gets a little nervous. And speaking of which, back to Forged Fire is, mm-hmm. I. I uh, I, we were doing the podcast and I was, you know, it's going kind of bananas. And all of a sudden I get this uh, direct message from Neil Kamamura, which I have never really talked to. And he says, he gives me his phone number. He says, give me a call. And all I can think of is, what did I say? <laughs> I'm like, I'm sure I said something horrible or, or something. That got, I'm going to get yelled at. So I called him up nervous, obviously. And, uh, he, uh, he was super, super cool. He was talking about blacksmithing. He knew that we do hammer-ins with, at Sunset Forge, and he wanted to be involved. And he was super, super cool. But he's a Forge and Fire champion. I was, like, terrified. He says his number, his telephone number, it call me. <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought I'd said something, you know, unfortunate. So. so do you have a preference for handle material? Um, I, st- I really liked – G10 because I like the colors um, and also finishing. Micarta, I, I don't really like finish. The only micarta I use is I use tan canvas micarta. I like canvas, tan canvas micarta. Canvas micarta I like. Um, but G10, I love the colors. I love changing the colors, doing a lot of uh, high contrast colors, uh, trying to get my old art stuff back by doing contrasting colors. Um, but recently I've been doing – Pardon me. I've been doing a lot more stabilized wood. I've been stabilizing my own wood from a local lumber yard, uh, three generation lumber mill in, um, in in Peekskill, where I am. I've I've got a connection with them, and I, I'm able to get wood that they tell me what street it's from, which is the best. So they mill their own wood, and then I end up, you know, when you, with when I first started making, when I was helping my friends make hammers, it was easy to get small pieces of hickory because you know when you're buying board feet of hickory or ash. They they don't want you know the lumber yards they don't they can't do anything with you know 14 inches of you know lumber so it's the same thing with the knives so I end up getting stuff that um, they couldn't possibly sell so it's usually like burls and stuff that's cool but recently I've been getting from customers these sentiment some of these customers are so sentimental it's insane they'll give like like a cut off piece of a tree and they say can you do anything with this and what i do is i take the tree i mill it down a little bit the branch down to like it's a manageable thing i stick it in my even heat kiln and i and then i dry it out for 48 hours at 200 degrees and then i stabilize it and i'm getting great results from these live trees that's what that's been the craziest like to stabilize you know real trees not just this bullshit you get from the lumber yards no offense the lumber yards i thought right. you were gonna say like you just throw the branch in the fire pit and just use it with something else <laughs> you can i mean you can just i mean it, i'm getting like you know the whole concept of stabilizing is so wood has uh, do you guys know should i should i go and go, give you a quickie on stabilizing sure i'm with you for it trademark my man so <laughs> so so if you have a house that's got a lot of uh 
you know, they got wooden doors and wooden windows and you're opening them up. They get stuck when it gets very humid. Like there's right. a change in temperature, right? And that's because there's air in the wood. So when you're stabilizing wood, what you're doing is you're taking the wood and you're putting it in the vacuum chamber and you're filling it above the top of the wood with resin. And then you're weighing the wood down in the resin. And then the, the vacuum chamber is attached to vacuum. You turn the vacuum on, it sucks the air out of the chamber and then it sucks all the air out of the wood. So then after 12 hours, 14 hours of, of pulling out all that air, you turn it off and wherever there was air, it gets replaced with the resin. So you're gaining you're gaining a lot of weight. The wood all of a sudden becomes, becomes much heavier. It's, it's also denser. And it's actually – it's a little harder to, to – uh, depending on how you do it, it can be harder to sand. But you're getting a better luster, but it's also not going to change in your handle. So it won't – it can't absorb water. Like grandma, you go to grandma's house and she's got the handles where the scales are flapping <laughs> off the sides, right? Well, with your stabilized wood, there's nowhere for – wood can't absorb the water. It's all – the resins replacing where there would be any absorption. So it's great. I mean it's great. And to be able to do it yourself, you know, you could put dye in the – resin and you know you could you could suck up the dye and, and it's great um actually the more i've been doing the stabilized stuff the more simple i've been going and i like i like using wood more um i like it all i don't like micarta i'm not crazy about micarta micarta has a tendency to burn i don't know if it's the paper or whatever it, it's and then it's it's all it's a little bit harder to finish so micarta can i love i g10 i love and i like wood Ah, my car is okay. All right, next question. <laughs> terrible. That's a terrible answer. How <laughs> about like any natural materials like bone or anything? I, I've never it? done. I've never done anything with bone or antler. I actually, yes, I have. I got some jigged buffalo horn, and I touched it to the grinder, and my all of a sudden my shop smelled like a burning down abattoir, and it was like. <laughs> This is not for me. It's the it is like the smell of it's the smell of misery. If you if you ever if you ever grind horn, it's like it's the smell of defeat. It's not there's no one's happy no one's happy in a shop when they're burning down burning down some horns. Here's my next t shirt, burning down the horns. Yeah. Yeah. For you. What's your favorite non blade thing to make? Uh, I, you know what I really enjoy doing is making hammers and I haven't made a lot. I've made about five hammers with, uh, Cliff Dufton and Sunset Forge and Jesse and, and those guys, the modern forge guys. Um, I made hammers under the tutelage of, of, of John Ariane, Sunset Forge. And I would say that, and I have everything to make the hammers and I love doing it, but I, I, that would be, if I wasn't making knives, I would probably try to make more hammers. It's fun. Nice. Yeah, you have uh, any best beginners advice? Yeah, take a class. I think that a lot of times, um, you know, the YouTube videos now are so good. Like I always send people to uh, Aaron Goff's videos, Michael Trolsky's videos. They're very, very good for getting you into knives ma- making and fire being fired up. But I, I tell you what, I think that people make a huge uh, tactical error by not taking a class because. A lot of people do is they'll they'll watch Forge and Fire and then they'll just buy an anvil, you know, from Harbor Freight or whatever. And all of a sudden they hit it a couple times and their neighbors are like, "Yo, what's going on?" You know that I think that a lot of people don't realize that. Also, especially forging, it's not if you do it wrong, you can really get hurt, you know. And it's really one of those things that 
once again, you know, people think that anvils come from, you know, Looney Tunes. I don't think there's a whole lot of information on proper technique and proper stance and how you're supposed to talk, uh, how you're supposed to stand or how you're supposed to hold your hammer or the height of your anvil. And I think that a lot of times the best thing to do, if I were starting out, I would take a class. And, and, you know, it's like going to the gym. You don't just start going to the gym and start throwing weights around. Right. You know, you, maybe you might want a trainer to kind of tell you what you're doing right or wrong and also to see if you like it. You know, well, all of a sudden you just, you know, you buy a, you know, a two by 72 grinder and you don't like it. <laughs> you're out. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You know? As, a, as we look at the anvil that I bought right. sitting on our fireplace down here. Well, we but... I'm sorry. What I will say is that in regards to young knife makers is you don't have to have a heat treating oven to make knives because what you can do is you can have stuff get heat treated right. professionally. So you can make knives inexpensively, stock removal, without the whole idea. Because I know some people, you know, they all of a sudden they're making fires in their barbecue pits and with hair dryers and yeah. stuff. And there were snow blowers or whatever they're using. And <laughs> you don't have to do that. You, there are companies that will heat treat for you. And, you, you know, you, that's a better way to step into it. Um, and then, you know, you're also getting guaranteed results in regards to how your knives are heat treated. Because that's really, that's the most critical, that's one of the most critical parts about knife making. Hmm. So I'm in the process of building a workshop here at our house uh, we have an old shed that i'm rehabbing currently but i've bought a bunch of equipment yeah, great I have, I have an anvil i actually i just bought a forge because we did take a class and we we did some other work with um theo naz out of brooklyn sure sure and uh so i wish we had more time to do it but it's just a matter of things don't line up easy you know. for us to get out to classes so it's um, hard that's the hardest part it's easier said than done. Right. So I just got this new propane forge. I haven't even gotten to use it yet because I have nowhere to put it. But I also know that you just got a new propane forge that you had posted about recently. Yeah. And I wanted to ask, have you always been using propane forge or did you use coal forges? And then if you had to choose one that you would prefer, which would it be? We, when I started at the Center for Metal Arts, they had three Coke forges and they had, we had like three uh, Swan forges and a couple of NC forges. And for production, when we were doing, when we were doing railings, we were doing a lot of railings, we were doing a lot of pickets. It was, it was much more uh, economic and efficient to use gas forges because the gas forges are, you know, you're, you're bottoming out at a certain temperature. So you, it's really, you know, in a Coke forge, you cook stuff so fast to make your head spin. You'll, you'll, I mean, you'll literally melt stuff. Yep. It's pretty hard to, with just regular mild steel forging, it's pretty hard to, to forget about a piece of steel in, the, in, the, in a gas forge and it go totally wrong. Of course, it's different for, uh, you know, uh, knife steel, you, you know, it's, that, you can't do that. But my, I, my experience has always been um, – with I'm more and more comfortable with gas forges. I like gas forges. I like how even they are. I like how, you know, you can you have a little bit more control. I, it's not easy for me to get coke around here. I mean, coal. You know, I mean, when I say coke, I'm not. Yes. I'm saying cocaine. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, as in, as in like I'm as like I'm saying, it's not easy for me to get coke around here. <laughs> so, but but to get a, a bottle of uh, propane, 
just go to the gas station, you know, yeah. and um, that makes it more uh, convenient for me. What kind of what kind of Ford did you get? I got a um, Matthewson Metals uh, Metalsmith, so it's like a single burner, I believe. Nice. Have you started it up yet? No, I have. By the time I got it, it, was kind of too cold to do anything outside, and I didn't have anywhere else to put it. I got a tip from uh, Jonathan Porter of Doghouse Forge. He said, "Don't for the first time." You gotta turn. You gotta open it up outside. Yep. Because all the that's why I, that's because all of a sudden the uh, the paint, all the fumes, the factory stuff, it turns to it's smoke. So like you're you you get terrible odors from it. So you gotta do the first the first hour. You go outside full blast. Got it. And you knew that. Well, well you're fans. Maybe not. You're fans of the forge. You should. That's the part of the name of the podcast. You're fans of the forge. You should. You know that. You know that. Yeah. Yes. What tool do you use most often? Um, my, uh, pro- I, 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 probably the disc grinder. I use a disc grinder, a right, uh, 72 by 72 grinder. Yep. And then the disc grinder I spend, I spend a lot of time on. I love the disc grinder. It's my favorite tool. It's the best investment I've gotten in a long time. Gets your, gets your knives flat and your handle. It's very nice. I hear you're also a fan of angle grinders. I don't like angle grinders. You know, once you get stuck, you get you have no choice. You know, that's the thing. It's I say, you know, you it's it's since I was 19, I started metalworking. I'm 45. So I was 19, I was metalworking. You everyone has a right angle grinder. They're the cheapest, and they're effective, but they're the dang, most dangerous, and the they're, they're the awful. It's pretty There's destructive. Nothing good, they're nothing good about it. It's so cheap. It's so cheap, and <laughs> They're so you can get in so much trouble with a right angle grinder. So I, I hate them, but you can't help it. I we so we started talking about the right angle grinder community. It's I think it's everybody who doesn't have like a water jet, you know, anybody who's not <laughs> yeah. like anyone who's not like a multi millionaire is part of the right angle grinder community. We're all part of. We don't want to be. There's no choice. We're not rich enough to get out. So everyone's in, most most metal workers are members of the right angle grinder community. I think Craig's going to be making that T-shirt. <laughs> I like it. Isn't that what you asked for for Christmas from your mom? Oh yeah, I got an angle grinder for yeah. Christmas. I can't wait to start <laughs> using that thing. They're the worst. You know, we we used to talk about uh, when I when I was uh, I was nineteen. We would have we were I was working at this shop for this sculptor, and it was all like old steel, and we'd get right angle grinders with cut brushes, and then we'd we'd take all the rust off and kind of create this very kind of, you know, very modeled, very antique, you know, old rust. And what happens is it's in the summertime in Brooklyn, and, you know, you got an eight-inch right angle grinder, and then your shirt comes out and it grabs it, and it just, we call it the alligator, because what it does, it rolls up towards your neck. <laughs> and it's like, that's the worst. Get, a, get yourself a, a, a braided wire cup and catch your shirt in it. And then call me about it. See how good it is. You'll never <laughs> want to use a grinder again. Crawls right up towards your neck. Oof. I've used a wire. I've used a wire wheel on one to strip paint off an old radiator. And then when I was done, I just would have oh. strands of it like in my shirt, like yeah. all over the place. Those, those you got to get. The, those are like. I mean, I don't even know how OSHA hasn't come down on the companies <laughs> that are making those because those little ones. It's like it's like a it's like some sort of. Uh, it's some sort of like missile system because those like they shoot everywhere 
and like you're they're in your shirt they're in your shirt whatever but you got to get the thick braided ones because they held they hold themselves together i don't know i think that those those ones that you're talking about i think that's for like your cordless drill because i can't I, the thought of putting those in the right angle grinder it's insane yeah, no, because it came with one of those ones like a disc, and then I also yeah. had the ones that were a cup that was the braided. I mean, who who proved that? That's like the, <laughs> of, all, of all of all the tools ever approved, that's the most dangerous. There should be lawsuits going everywhere for those things. There you go. I'm with you. You. you can be a class action. All right, all right, I got you. <laughs> that's all three. Right, all right, all right, all right. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Um. When it comes to, I guess, anything you make, are you, yes, stainless or not so much? Well, um, when I first started making knives, I was doing mostly carbon steel. That's because what I learned how to use. And then I really wanted to focus my knives towards what people were comfortable with. And all of a sudden, people were being like, ah, I love this knife, but how come it's changing color? Or I love this knife, but... Why is it rusting? And so I'd have to explain the whole idea. And I thought, well, you know, people are used to stainless steel. So I started to look into it and I, and I started having the, it heat treated from a friend of mine, uh, Kyle, um, Kyle Daly, would heat treat knives for me. And I wanted to provide something for people that they felt comfortable with. Because one of the things that a lot of knife makers do is they say, yeah, you're, I'm going to make what I make and you're going to buy what I make. And I think that if you're in business, I think it's good to kind of look at your customer base and say, well, I want you to have what you want and what you're comfortable with. So I would say that 90% of my knives are stainless steel. And, and, and I think that it gives people an opportunity to also use them and not feel like they're these, you know, you got to put white gloves on it every time you want to use this knife. I want people to use my knives. I want to, you know, feel comfortable using them. And part of that is, you know, some people just are not comfortable with the maintenance of carbon steel. So, the answer is, is I, I try to like, I don't want people to be nervous when they're buying my knives. And that's sometimes, I mean, I'm, I'm always surprised. Usually when I have do a consultation, most people don't really understand. And they're nervous to say they don't understand about carbon steel because they're afraid I'm going to like yell at them or something, <laughs> which is never the case, you know. And it's just like, I want you to have what you feel comfortable with. And then they get fired up to maybe down the line say, you know what, I don't have this carbon seal. Let's go with that. And then you're, you know, you're trying to kind of give people something that, you know, they have value, they have, they feel value, they have value, but also that they don't feel like, you know, they're getting pushed into something maybe they're not ready for. You don't need to take the Ferrari to go to school, you know, and sometimes <laughs> you need to, you know, uh, you need a fuel efficient car sometimes to, take your kids to school a pinto whatever yeah. whatever <laughs> prius pinto yugo whatever you want i'm showing my age <laughs> yugo i said a yugo do you a have old. a favorite damascus pattern uh i do i love well morocco's damascus i don't is 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 so amazing like his uh, mosaics pattern Damascus is incredible. And I would say that everything he does, this new briar patch stuff he's doing is like, it's mind blowing. I mean, I think that what Mareko's doing is, I think when it comes to what he's doing, he is the top of the food chain. I don't think that, I think I, I have this, you know, like this, my, my personal uh, Mount Rushmore, but he's like, what he's doing is extraordinary. Um, I'm also a fan of the old school. Like I love what Aaron Wilburn does. Aaron Wilburn of Wilburn Forge does feather Damascus, which is stunning. And it's like, it's amazing. Um, 
I also, one of my friends, I love this guy. One of the, I call him my, my terrifying guardian angel, um, Nick Anger. He, he's like my, he's this giant ghoul that creeps up on me every so often. And, and what he's doing is extraordinary too. And he's one of the most innovative guys in terms of kind of creating, um, something very recognizable and new. That's three good guys, three yeah. different guys too. Those three different styles. Right. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, um, do you have any interest in going on a show like Forge and Fire or Master of Arms or anything like that? Oh, no. no, I don't really. I mean, it's just like I, I you know, I've honestly, I've never been a competition guy, and I think that um, I appreciate. I have a lot of friends who've been on that show, all those shows, and I appreciate it. It's just not for me. I, I just don't think. I don't think that it would. I just don't. You know. I like this. I like, you know, talking like a normal person. I don't want to be edited. You know, I, I like, I like the idea. I don't feel, I don't feel the need to be put up against other guys. And the other thing is, is like, I feel like I'm, you know, semi-human garbage anyway. So, so I probably <laughs> won't, I won't, you know, I wouldn't even cough it up. The funny, I will tell you a really funny thing. So I've been being buddies with a lot of these Forge and Fire guys and uh, I, one of my favorite people on the planet earth is bill benke bill benke is such a good dude he started making file guides and he makes awesome file guides and he also now recently he's been making um radius platins he's just a dynamite guy every time i see him at blade show he's an older guy but he's so forward thinking he embraces social media he's super cool to younger guys a lot of older blacksmiths and bladesmiths are just very like you know dismissive of these younger generations Bill is just one of the nicest guys, and <clears throat> we've been talking. And I, anytime I get a chance to try to sell some file guides for him, I'm happy to do it. I just, I just love everything about him. So he sends me this message, and he goes, "Listen, if you're if you're watching, um, if you got TV, I'm going to be on Forge and Fire tonight." And then he said at the end, "Don't laugh." So I turn to my wife, and I'm like, "Oh, I think Bill's going to lose." And she said, "What do you say about that?" She said, "Wow, well, you know, it just sounds like he said don't laugh. Why would I? I mean, if I would laugh." It means like, you know, something went bad. Oh, poor Bill. And I was just like, oh, man, I can't. I can't well, good luck, man. I'm pulling for you. I'm my wife. I'm like, hey, fucked it, man. He's he, he done. <laughs> so the next morning, the next morning, I wake up and son of a bitch, he got me. He won the whole damn thing. But it was so great because the night before, he's like, don't. I was on Fortune Fire. Don't laugh too hard. I was like, oh, poor Bill. Poor good old Bill. And I was like, the fucker got me. He got me. He got me. He won the whole damn thing. He's the best. Bill Bank, he's the greatest. I love that guy. Have we seen that one? I think that was recent. That was this past season, I think, that he was. Yeah, on. I think so. Oh, I don't know. I, I don't really. We probably did a wrap-up for it, but we also did a wrap-up for 39 other episodes. So yeah. it's like, we don't remember. You, I, you don't have to. We got it. The story's there. <laughs> got it. Don't worry about it. God bless you. Have you yeah. ever thought about competing in a blade sports competition? No. I make culinary knives. What, what, kind, of, what kind of competition would I That eat? looks like good fun. I, I don't know if it's fun. I, you know, to be honest with you, I like to just, I don't, I've never felt the need to compete. And, and it's like, I, I, I can see myself also as a student for life. I, 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 I'm a member of the Bladesmith, uh, the, uh, uh, the ABS, American Bladesmith Association. I'm, a, I'm been a, a member in good standing and I will probably never test for Journeyman Smith. I believe in what they do, but I, feel that I'm student for life and I'm happily student for life. I love, you know, this whole me being a knife expert is ridiculous. You know, I, <laughs> I, I'll tell you how I do things 
But like, you know, it is a little absurd. I mean, the, when in Epicurious, they call me a knife expert. They're a bunch of millennials. They don't know what it, I mean. They, of course, I'm a knife expert. If I if I had a hot dog in my hand, I'd be the hot dog expert. You know, there's no there's no there's not a whole lot. You know, I would you know, a lot of people don't read between the lines on some of this stuff. But my opinion is a student for life and happily so I can never imagine the concept of me, you know, waiting, you know, biding my time and waiting those three years to get the you know, the journeyman Smith and then rush, rush, rush to get the master. I want to do this for the rest of my, I want to learn shit for the rest of my life. You know, my, my heroes, Fred Christ, Uri Hoffi, these are students for life. You know, they learn shit every day. Uri Hoffi is 83. He just forged me a hammer. He's, and he's like, he learns every day. And it's like, that's what I want. The day that I'm like, I can, I can wrap it all up is like, I, you know, you know, it's toes up right there. I don't, I'm not interested. <laughs> I want a hot dog expert T-shirt made, and I want, yeah. I want you holding a hot dog. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. Hand pick. I'll do a hand pick of a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> so, for a while, um, okay. So this is my Instagram deep dive now. So I went back on Fetter Knives and your. Jeff Fetter Instagram accounts and just kind of scrolled through some of the stuff that you'd posted throughout the years. And for a while you were making these giant fishing lures. And I know that you did an art show around these fishing lures. So how did that come about? And uh, how you just in general, like the making of these giant fishing lures, how did that come about? So when I was a, when I was a freshman in college, I went to when I was in Kenyon College. Ohio is a very big fishing. There's a lot of good places to fish in Ohio, and it just freshwater fishing is awesome. And I became friends with another art major who was a really a big fisherman, and we used to fish a lot. And I sold a sculpture to I, the first sculpture I ever sold was a giant black and white street cow, a, a cow made of street signs. I called it a street cow named Desire. And I sold it to a teacher who gave me enough money to buy a. Uh, I got. I had enough money to get up, have the biggest party on the campus with four bands. I was a freshman, four bands and two kegs. I put all the money on. I was like, we're gonna have the biggest party, and I this huge party. It was a, I was the only freshman to ever do that. And then I would go fishing at this. So the guy would, who bought the sculpture said, "You can fish here all that you want." So my buddies and I would go to this pond. We fished the whole time, and I loved fishing. And then we'd get fired up, and we enjoyed it. We'd cut class if the fishing was good. We had, were really deep, deep, deep into fishing. Loved it. And then we'd go buy lures. And I always make these jokes saying, you know, these lures, I mean, you know, the names and the colors. And I was like, these fucking fish don't know anything about these names. <laughs> these are for the people. And I really like them. I, but they're all crazy. It's like these fish don't. Well, you know what? I need so many different kinds of fish don't care. They don't even see color most likely. Well, this is crazy. So I was in the sculpture class where we had to take, we had to, the assignment was to take something small and make it big. So I was just like, well, here, I'll make this lure. So I make, so I got a Rapala, and I laminated all this wood together, and I carved the wood out. I made the steel treble hooks, and it was cool. It was really cool. And then somebody was just like, can you make me one? And then from freshman year till, you know, this past year, I've been made, I've probably made a, I've made more lures than I made knives. I've been made, I mean, that's what I did for a living is I had galleries in Wyoming and a gallery in New York. And I was selling the lures. They were much more – then they started to kind of transform and, you know, that's the – this is the idea of what an artist is. An artist is really – when you're learning about – or sculptor or painter, 
when you're trying to create your own style, it's an evolution of an idea. So you don't just say, all right, today I'm going to draw an apple and then tomorrow I'm going to, you know, make a sculpture of a dog. You know, you, you have this kind of, when people are looking at your work, your body of work, it's this evolution. So, so maybe, you know, you make these little subtle changes and it's very similar to my knives where you're making these subtle changes. So I'd make these lures and I'd try to keep them away from looking like Rapala's and trying to, they try to kind of turn into something, um, kind of closer to, you know, what I do now. So I was doing the lures for a long time. They were super, you know, I was doing art shows with the lures and then I started doing, um, smaller ones. And then I wanted to do more about the collection. So I did this giant, um, actually it helped me making, uh, knives was, I did this, I had a friend of mine who's a bronze caster and he was telling me, he's like, you know, you, you guys are, you welders are, you're so screwed. You know, the bronze casting is the way to go because you just make one mold and then you knock them out. And I'm like, well, fuck you. I'm going to make 69. I'm going to make 60 needlefish. I'm going to make, I'm going to carve and paint 60 lures. They're going to be identical. I'm going to carve them identical. I'm going to paint them identical. And, you know, it's a big, you know, I'm not, a, I don't, you and your bronze casting go beat it. So I made 60 and it was mind numbing because it was like carving 60 every different stage. And you're painting one little dot you're painting instead of one dot that takes you a minute. It's taking you five hours because you've been doing all 60 of them. <laughs> so what happens is you learn how to – I learned how to kind of like – I wanted to finish it. And um, it was how you can organize your time, how you can organize how you build things. And then when I started making the knives, when I was doing batches for these chefs, we'd do – like I recently did 36 for the chef Carl Ruiz. We bought – we sold 36 and I had to make 36. You had to get in that mind frame of like it's going to suck today. We're going to just hand sand today. We're going to hand sand for the next week and it's going to be the same one step. But if I didn't do those lures that way, I could never do these – I could never feel confident doing these batches. But it, it brings you to – it brings you to madness. Like – if you, I mean, I've never, I've never been so close to, I mean, I mean, madness. Like you're just one dot. And then all of a sudden you're just like, all right, now I'm going to do this one brushstroke, but now I got to do it 120 times <laughs> the same one. Cause now they're like, I really got to do this. And I do this. And like, no, and every, like every time you do one stroke, you got to do a stroke for the, all of them. So it's not like painting. It's like, it's madness. It's madness. But <laughs> It's totally helped me in regards to this business. I couldn't have been if – if I hadn't done those lures and that sculpture, I could never have done these dives. And that sculpture that you have of those where they're all on the wall and it looks like they're all swimming together in, in a school of it's, – it's awesome. It looks amazing. Oh, so yeah, that – like as I'm scrolling through and I saw that, I was like – I was looking at it for a good couple of minutes just like that's incredible. That's like really cool. That was cool. a fun project. That was a really fun project. Um, I, the idea of the collection – the, you know, when I was a kid, I was really into comic books and like the collection was really important to me. And I like the idea. That's a lot of what uh, a lot of thematic artists do is the concept of the collection is, is, is always been great. And with lures, it's very much along those lines of the, you know, the tackle box full. And I would do these art shows that everyone was different. So it looked like it was from your tackle box. But then the concept of the flock, you know, the you know, it started to that started to it was still they were still lures but they weren't they were more there was the there weren't any treble hooks on them they weren't you know they didn't look totally like lures until you looked at them but as a mass as a flock it looked like uh you know um it looked like uh you know a flock of birds you know a murder of birds is that what they call murmuration something like that you know, oh, that, you know murder what a, of crows or something crows, yeah. Sean you know about a murmuration that's no. when you see the they're all 
flying in this like incredible pattern that it's almost like a swarm. Oh, okay. Is that what that's called? Oh, yeah, a murmuration. There you go. I'm I was not with you on that. Hands of hands of the flock. (laughs) So I have one other Instagram deep dive here, and it's just a comment that I wanted to make. Was I was scrolling across and I saw a wooden knife that you had made for your nephew. And the comment that you wrote on the the packaging of the knife was hilarious. Um, don't cut off your yeah. Don't cut off your <laughs> wiener. Don't hurt your brother, and don't cut off your wiener. Yeah, my I have these two nephews, and they're these two little cute little, you know, these little nerds, and they uh, they're good little guys. And and one of them was getting to his uh, it was his birthday was coming up, and I said, well, he was in the shop, he was looking at everything. His dad said, don't touch anything, don't touch anything. And I started turning around, I said, what do you want for your birthday? And he goes, I want a knife. And I was like, wow, you know, you're pretty young. I said, but I'll make you a wooden knife. And when I was a kid, that's what I, that's all I did was make wooden knives. When my dad told me how to make knives with a, you know, bandsaw and I was making knives and bows and arrows and all that. So for me to whip that little knife out, it was, it really was, it was, it was awesome because it really brought me back to when I was a kid. And then all of a sudden I'm breaking out the Bill Benke file guide to, you know, make them make sure my plunge lines are nice. Like, well, if I got to do it, I got to do it right. And then I was like, I made a badass little wooden knife and then I, you know, I, you know, I, I thought he was going to beat his brother up with it, you know, and I was just like, you know, don't. And, then, you know, kids like to, when you say don't do something, you're a wiener. You know, like all oh, that wiener talk. So. <laughs> so, I, so I threw in don't cut off your wiener and don't hit your brother. That was a big, that was a fan favorite. And then I had to make his brother one. And then I, and then I write the same note, too. And don't, can you tell, don't tell, tell me not to, you know, cut off my wiener, too. <laughs> you know, that kind of Sounds like our six-year-old little one. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's it. That's all we got for questions. Um, Fantastic. You know, thanks again for coming on with us. And, you know, I know you guys over at Knife Talk have been, thank you for again for the shout out on your podcast and the Instagram tags and things like that. We really appreciate it because every time you guys tag us in a story, our follower count like jumps a little bit. We get a few <laughs> Good. more. So it's been helping well, us out, and we really do appreciate well, it. Well, we got to keep, you know, we're all in this together. And, and, you know, one of the things that we, when when we started doing Knife Talk is I really, I re- we really felt like it was important to have everybody be involved. And, you know, people want to, you know, people want to be involved in these things. So for us, uh, we do a lot, you know, anytime someone does something, we always do something. And we're, we, we do a lot of fan questions. And the podcast is Knife Talk. Uh, it's Knife Talk. And then you, we also have a forum on knifetalk.net where it's a lot of – apparently in Europe, they like the forums. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm too – I might be too old. But like in Europe, in Africa, we got like African knife makers and all these European knife makers. They love a forum. So you can you know, you know, can meet up with these guys and they kind of go over things. And it's – pardon me. It's a great opportunity for people to kind of connect. And then we really do our best to – Make sure that people are involved. This isn't a radio show where you can call in. So we try to do a lot of um, – we do a segment called Hey Man, Can I Ask You a Question where you ask us questions and then there's like I'll never do that again or these things that you do in your shop that you don't want. Or, you know, like you make a mistake. You're knocking into something. Oh, you, shit. But, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. It, Craig loves the jingles. He cannot control himself. <laughs> it's fine by me. I listen. It's you know he's got the he's behind, he's behind the computer, so he does whatever he wants. He loves the jingles. He loves the jingles. So, but yeah, but it's been a lot of fun, and yeah, I appreciate you know I appreciate you guys reaching out, and uh, I'm so I'm I'm 
fine. I'm perfectly happy with the fact that we didn't go after the the twenty nine dollar knife and pan, but I think you've covered that well, and we don't need to do that. Well, I you, you know? know I do have a comment about that, but <laughs> go it's ahead. only be one little one. Go ahead, because so, you know it's not going to be little for me. <laughs> so, I can't control myself. Yeah. So I actually had not seen the infomercial commercial yeah. of sorts for the Forge and Fire pan. It's amazing. It was incredible. Sean yeah. sent it to us yesterday, and Teresa and I are flabbergasted watching this thing. So I posted it, and it was easily the most responses to any Instagram thing that I've posted yeah. ever. And uh, a number of people just like, are you kidding me? People then lost their damn minds. And then uh, I had one guy um, at Princeworks Forge. Oh, yeah, Josh Prince. Yes. And he dude. goes, can you imagine if 30 years down the line, Forged in Fire is not anything that people remember as a knife-making show, but a pan company. <laughs> he's, dude, he was on Forge and Fire. Josh was on yep. Forge and Fire. And he's a he's tight with Jesse James. Jesse James is a big fan of Josh Prince. Prince is a great guy. He's a good dude, man. He makes awesome Damascus, too. But, you know, look, I said this on the podcast. They don't care. They're trying to make a couple bucks. If they were smart, I used to realize this afterwards, they should have gotten involved with, like, Carhartt. And they like work clothes. Oh yeah, that's the better idea because all of a sudden now, because you know, all of a sudden your your customers are different. Like people need pants, you know, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, men oh, and yeah. women need pants, and these want to be. If you want to be like a bladesmith, get yourself like a Forge and Fire edition Carhartt double front jeans or something like that. Well, use your head. Why would you do with the pants? It makes no sense at all. Particularly it's when idiotic. it's idiotic. It's supposed to be like a lifetime pan. Why would you buy two? Oh yeah, you get one they, for like cheaper. There's like a sale too. to have two. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good point. You don't need Teresa. Two. Teresa has a good point right there. <laughs> I, you're absolutely right. I, it's just, it's just my. It's just look. They did what they did. I, I've said it off. I, it's just stupid. You know, it's like, you know. But I mean, what do you expect? These guys are gonna do what they're gonna do. Yeah. You know, it, it's the scorpion and the scorpion and the frog, right? Scorpion yeah. and the frog, you know that? Yes, the scorpion yeah. taking a ride on the frog and right, all that good stuff. I think we talked it was, about it when we talked about the, when the knife, the whole knife thing started. Yeah. I said, did they just hire a marketing person like two months ago and all this stuff just started happening? Because they had nothing for sale before. And then all of a sudden... Okay, mugs, shirts, whatever. Yeah. David Baker phone cases. Yeah, I mean, really? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. so yeah. bizarre, so bizarre. And <laughs> and now it's the knife set and the pan set, and it's like, look, I'm under the impression that you got the, when you have these trademarks, you you use them or you or you lose them. You yes. know, so there might have been a lot involved with that. And I also think that the right guy came at the right time, and they're like, we'll take your money. You know, no problem. And because I mean, clearly, there's no clips in those stupid videos from the show. Except for that, you know, tiny forge that you couldn't possibly have pan in, <laughs> right, you know? right. and and uh, and and you know the hammering of the anvil and the hammering of the pans. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's 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 my and then the be, the, the stupidest part is the pressure washer. They put a pressure washer up against probably <laughs> yeah. the worst painted car of all time. It's like it's like what car you put a pressure washer up against and the paint just flies off like that and then and then they put it on the pan and nothing's happening well why would it it's not paint 
Why would, yeah. why would that come out as a pain on the pan? And then this woman is flipping an omelet, and then to flip it, she blows on it, and the omelet comes off onto the plate. You can't eat that. It's a piece of paper. What, what, what kind of mental patient thinks that, here, blow on it, and then the thing flies off, and that shows you how good of – it shows you how good of a pan it is. It shows you that the woman obviously doesn't have emphysema. That's it. It's <laughs> stupid. It's, it's, the whole thing's idiotic. But look, that's what they did. This is what they did. They said, <laughs> they said, all right, well, we're clearly not going to listen to fans of the Forge because what are they saying on fans of the Forge? Nothing. They don't care. <laughs> Those executives, they don't go on social media. They don't care about all the angry knife makers that are never going to watch the show again. They don't care. No, they don't. Go ahead. Buy my $29. Why wouldn't you sell $29 pants? It just seems like it makes more sense. <laughs> I think that if they did that, if they work with like a company like Carhartt, an American company, and did Carhartt pants, I think people would be like, you know what? Good for you. Using these American companies that we support, we wear these clothes, and boom. And that would have been an easy thing to be the – I believe – I think Jay Nielsen actually has a deal with Carhartt or something too to wear their clothes on the show. So it's even that much well, more ridiculous. You know, and that's the irony of ironies is these guys can wear their sh- clothes, but, you know, all the contestants, you get their fir- you get their first name and then you get a pin drop on a Google map from where they're from. Yep. That's what they do. And it's just like, come on, guys. Only if they you make know, it to the s- end. <laughs> yeah, well, you know the name of their forge until they're, unless they're at the yeah, final. I'm under the impression you don't even know the name of their forge. And the, the whole thing is, is you know, that's the – that's the issue is really it's – I mean that's – it's as – I'm telling you that I'm imagining that it's all – these are just legal issues. So it's not – has nothing to do with like they're making this decision. I think that there's some legal – you know, when lawyers get involved, it's just a whole lot of things you can and can't do. Yeah. But it's like, you know, you throw these – some you should be throwing these guys bones. And here's the real issue and I know you want to leave and I don't blame you. The <laughs> real issue is is the a lot of the contestants – and I, I believe in the working person. Like I worked with my hands. My dad used to refer to me negatively as my son, the welder. Like it was a <laughs> disgusting thing. You know? A lot of these guys, they go on the show and they think I'm going to be famous. And really what happens is, is there's no such thing. You know, it doesn't exist. It, does, it doesn't exist. What you have to do is you have to, you have to um, figure out a way to leverage you being on that show to turning it into something. But a lot of these guys, they just assume I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm about to be famous, and then you get home and like, why isn't the phone ringing? You know, these guys aren't really they're they're getting a little bit too starstruck in regards to the what's gonna happen. And I've talked to Fortune Fire guys who are like, they ended up before they got off the show and they're like, we're gonna invest because we're gonna get a slew of orders and you know nothing because there's no way that people know who these people are. Right. And and it's it makes me sad because a lot of these guys, they have this idea of what fame is, and without a business plan, you know, I, I was saying to somebody, you know, ten thousand dollars, even if you win it, what would you what what would be the smart thing to do? I mean, you can't get a good website for ten thousand dollars, right? You know, what would you, what's the smart thing to do if you're trying to get into business with ten thousand dollars? Ten thousand dollars isn't going to help you in business. So a lot of these guys, they just assume that good stuff is going to happen, and it doesn't. And that's the one thing about this show that I, I really dislike, and I feel like it gets to the point where they're kind of taking advantage of the naivety of of people who don't know about television. Not like I do, but like I don't trust any of these motherfuckers, to be honest with you. But I do believe that the hardest part is this managing the expectations of the people going on these shows and saying, 
well, what's going to happen? How can I like rally this into, you know, business? You know, how can I um, turn this into something that can happen as opposed to, all right, I'm, I did my job, phone ready to go. And, you, and then they don't capitalize on their situation. Right. Beef out. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, what is the word I'm going for here? Uh, long soliloquy. <laughs> Dissertation? Uh, Dissertation. Oh, manifesto is good too. That works Whatever. too. I was just going to say unexpected uh, where's the beef segment from Knife Talk. Uh, where's the beef? <laughs> yeah, we, bit, we, we bitch and moan at the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's leave it at that. That was a great time. Um, Thank you thanks much. again for coming on with us. Where Thank should people look for you online? Uh... Fader Knives, F-E-D-E-R-K-N-I-V-E-S, uh, on Instagram. Uh, and uh, I'm also the one of the hosts of Knife Talk uh, with Mareko Momasi, Forge and Fire champion, and Craig Lockwood of, Ch of Chop Knives, Momasi Fire Arts and Chop Knives. We do a weekly podcast called Knife Talk. It's fun. It's not all knives. It's a little bit of, you know, fooling around. And um, it's been a lot of fun, and that's where you find me. Great. Well, thanks again, and thanks, everybody, for watching. Follow Jeff, and uh, stay tuned for the next one. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bring it out there. We're with Jeff.